night. Welcome to the Catherine Zox Show. This informative and entertaining show will start your mornings off on the right foot. Here's your host, Catherine Zox, your social worker with the microphone. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with the microphone, and you're listening to the Catherine Zox Show. Joining me this morning is Emma Gray, senior women's reporter for HuffPost and author of Girl's Guide to Joining the Resistance, a feminist handbook on fighting for good. Wondering what women can do in the wake of 2016, journalist Emma Gray interviewed some of the most prominent thought leaders and activists of our time, including Women's March co-chair Carmen Perez, senior Senator Elizabeth Warren, and Black Lives Matter Network co-creator Alicia Garza to find out the best ways to listen, join in, and create sustainable action. Emma Gray has created a down and dirty guide for women of all ages to identify and resist the forces that are a threat to our rights. She's featured on the Today Show, Good Morning America, and Entertainment Tonight. Welcome to the show, Emma. Nice to have you on this morning. Thrilled to be here. Yeah, well, it's exciting. You write, we, we need this girl's guide. I'll, I'll start with that because I have so many friends, so many colleagues who say, like, what can we do in the wake of all this stuff that, that's been happening uh, in the women's movement? So your book, as I understand it, is for women who define themselves as new feminists, seasoned, pro, seasoned protester, all of us. And this is the dirty guide for us. And uh, so what can we do? Because there's a threat, as you say, to our rights. And uh, there are ways of going about actually protecting those rights. I really wrote this book as sort of a call to arms to women of all ages who might be feeling overwhelmed. I'm a journalist. I cover the intersection of gender and politics, and I covered the 2016 election, and I found myself, you know, covering um, the Clinton campaign, and I, w- I thought on election night when I was at the Javits Center with the Clinton campaign that I would be writing a story with my colleagues about the election of our first woman president, and obviously, I wrote a very different story and interviewed people until the early hours of the morning who were filled with a lot of grief and anger and fear, and a lot of those people were young women. And then a few months later, I got the chance to go to D.C. and cover the Women's March. And I saw firsthand what it looks like when that grief and fear and anger is really channeled into civic action. And that's an incredibly, incredibly powerful thing. So the most important thing that I sort of outline in the book is that you need to start with what you can, start with what is manageable. Maybe pick one issue that you feel a particular passion about and you know, something that you have the energy to run, not just a sprint, but the marathon on. And then see who's already doing the work in that space. The beauty of this moment is that there are so many people who have been doing work often for decades, and now they are finally kind of in the spotlight, and we can just show up and help them. Yeah, I think that's a really good, I want to stop there for a minute, because I think that when we think about it, uh, or at least in my experience or myself, it's like, oh, there's just so many issues. Do, am I having to start from scratch? What do I do? And I think of it kind of sometimes as an individual. And like you're saying, a lot of work has been done, but now the timing is right. And so you attach yourself or connect with those women who are, have already been doing some of this. So how do you do that? What do you do? I mean, give us an, an, a, like a concrete example of someone who's never done this before, who's never felt like they needed to protest or to stand up or to do something about, uh, you know, what 
uh, to join in the politics, I guess. Sure. And I think a lot of people, for, for a lot of people, the 2016 election was sort of a moment of awakening. I think a lot of us, you know, get overwhelmed and we just sort of tune out on politics or we see politics perhaps as removed from us. But the personal is political and the political is personal. So what you can do when you have that realization is, you know, in the back of my book, I literally list organizations split up by topic area. So if you have a deep passion for, say, gun control, fighting gun violence, you could go to the back of the book, look up the organizations and see, oh, hey, every town for gun safety exists. Go to that website and literally send an email. I'm sure that those websites have a volunteer tab. They have a donation tab. And you give whatever time and whatever money you have available. You can also start with really, really small things in your own community. You can start by literally looking up what are the elections that are coming up? Is, is there a city council election? Is there a city council member, someone who's running whose platform I really support? Or is there, you know, someone on the school board that has a really great idea that I love about how we can expand the curriculum around consent in the way, in the wake of the Me Too movement? Um, I think, again, pick one thing and make it specific to your local community. All right, so we're talking about pick the topic, and you can, all of that is in your book. This is a great guide, by the way. Anyway, and then also you can just do it within your community. I think, and also with the Internet now, I mean, everything's kind of the perfect storm. I mean, we have access to all this information all the time, so it makes it a lot easier uh, for us to do that now as women. Um, so you talk about, I, I think, you, you had interviews with all of these obviously very experienced activists, Elizabeth Warren. Um, what came out of those interviews? Um, for, for the, you know, I mentioned the women in the beginning. Um, for e- from each one of them, how did they get involved in the beginning? I mean, these are obviously very successful uh, women who have been doing this for a long time. But how did they get started? You know, everyone I spoke to had their own story. I spoke to Lucy McBath, who never considered herself to be an activist, and then her son, Jordan Davis, was shot and killed uh, when he was a teenager. He's an unarmed black teenager. And she became, you know, a gun control activist and a racial justice activist overnight. So there are people who came to this, you know, because of an experience of trauma um, or... You know, someone like Marlo Thomas, who sort of came of age during the, the second wave of women's movement, who, who found herself like in, in the midst of this movement and was friends with Gloria Steinem. And so I think that you have, everyone comes to activism perhaps at a different entryway point, depending on what that person's identity and life experience is. But the important thing is that they all have that moment of awakening, and then they used their stories and their life experiences to activate other people around them. So everybody comes, all right, so everybody comes, are motivated by different sets of circumstances, maybe internal, maybe more internal, maybe more external. Yeah. Why do you think, and maybe it's obvious, what happened now? Why is everybody, why are women all, as you say, old, young, experienced activists, non-experienced activists, why right now are, do you see this just, just, groundswell of women saying, okay, that's enough, and we need to 
to take charge of ourselves and our lives and our families and our jobs. First, I want to be really clear that none of this is new. There are so many women who, as I have said, have been doing this work for decades, just perhaps not with the national acclaim or attention that it's getting right now. It was sort of the perfect storm for these things that had been brewing forever to kind of bubble to the surface after the 2016 election, especially for women as a demographic. We had this eminently qualified female candidate who lost to perhaps one of the least experienced, most um, blundering, uh, blustery men in American history. And I think that really struck a chord for a lot of people. And again, all of the fear and anger that came out of that made even the people who had not been involved in activist work before want to sort of join the fight. And that's why you're seeing that groundswell. And that's also why you're seeing so many women step up and say, I want to run for office, which is a very interesting and specific outcome of the election. You know, in the weeks, literally in the weeks following Clinton's loss, organizations like partisan ones like Emily's List, nonpartisan ones like She Should Run that help women run for office uh, reported record numbers of women wanting to engage with their programs. And I wondered if that was sort of going to wane, but here we are, 2018, and that momentum has kept up, and we're seeing some of those women that stepped up, you know, in late November 2016 now actually running for office. And so that's, that's also been an incredible, incredible outcome of all of this. What, who are the women? What are the demographics of those women who are running for office? Are they the millennials or are they Gen X or do you get some of these older baby boomers involved or is it just a mix? I've spoken to women who are a mix of ages, which is really interesting and, and across political parties. Of course, I think the majority of these women are on the left but we're also seeing some moderate Republican women organizing and sort of in a movement to take their party back. Uh, but certainly women of, of all ages, women who were, you know, mothers who perhaps thought like my time had passed, but then were so activated and anchored that, Hey, I'm going to go run there. You know, was a woman in Jersey who's, um, uh, ran for, for local office against a man who had, Make, made fun of the women's march and ended up unseating him. So we're seeing all sorts of stories across the country, women of different you know, identity groups, backgrounds, ages, the commonalities that they're women. Well, I'm more familiar with the women on the left because that's sort of where I am. So talk to me about like the, these moderate Republican women. Who are they? Uh, who are speaking out? Uh, you're seeing there were two Republican women who spoke at the DNC. They started, I believe, an organization called um, Republicans for Hillary, something along those lines. And the two of them have since started an organization to raise money for uh, self-identified moderate Republican women. And I found that to be a very, very interesting. 
who are some of the most, I mean, because you've spoken to so many people, who, I mean, who stands out? I, I'm always curious, in, you know, in terms of the personal stories, people who have really turned around, let's say, women who have decided that, you know, they were offended by being, you know, called feminists and they didn't want to be associated with the word feminism, but now they've, that, that's a, it's a different story for them, given all that we've been talking about. So uh, any dramatic stories that you, you have about women who have really made in, changes in terms of their attitude and their actions in terms of the women's movement? I didn't speak to any women who described feeling, you know, offended or disconnected by the term feminism before, uh, but I did speak to women who had really powerful stories, like Lucy McBath, you know, who's someone who had never considered herself an activist and has since completely thrown her life into this work and is actually now running for Congress in Georgia. Such an incredible woman. Or Sarah McBride, who only you know came out as trans during university and what became the first openly trans person to address the DNC. And she just actually published a beautiful memoir that came out this week. Uh, called Tomorrow Will Be Different, and her story is just incredibly, incredibly powerful. Um, there are so, gosh, just so many women I spoke to of all ages were so inspiring. Obviously, Wendy Davis was amazing to speak to, and we all know, we know her story. We know the pink sneakers, um, and and it was just an incredible experience to be able to speak to so many women who came at these issues again from different perspectives and yet were all so invested in sharing their wisdom with other women. And they were all united in the fact that young women's voices are essential to all of these fights. Yeah, that's what you say. That was my next question. You say, uh, as I understand it, the one theme uh, really came up or stood out was that young women are really important, uh, that they are really the key to, a, to, uh, to all of this, I guess, to this whole movement, the young women. Um, and they were not brought up in a very different culture. So um, I guess that's not a surprise, is it? Or was it a surprise to you? It wasn't a surprise to me because there is such a long and beautiful history in this nation of young people and young women specifically being a driving force behind social movements. And I really wanted to situate what we're seeing right now, you know, look what's playing out in Parkland with these teenagers that have completely taken over the national conversation and really used the tools that are at their fingertips, social media, to amplify their message and then to really do the work. They just went to, a lot of them just went to Chicago to meet with gun control activists from communities of color. A lot of young people, communities of color, have been fighting for gun control for a long time. And, and they are really doing the work. And the reason their voices are so essential is because they sort of have, A, the most to lose. They will inherit the future that we create today. And they also are young enough to have the bravery to imagine that things could be different. And I think that that does take imagination and bravery. But I wanted to be clear that any young people that are building a movement now are building off of the work that young people and older people have been doing for such a long time, which is why I make sure to open the book with a story of a 23-year-old labor activist, Clara Lemlich, who started 
you know, this uprising and huge 40,000 person strike of shirtwaist makers in 1909. So young women have always been at the forefront. We just perhaps have not heard about them. Well, Emma, what about the fact that when you hear these, I don't know whether you would call them naysayers or whatever, but who are saying, well, okay, so, you know, everybody's really, these women are really excited about this now, but this is going to die down like everything else. You know, give it a couple months and uh, we're just going to sort of go back to the way it was. What do you say about that? As a journalist, I, I had the same questions, especially in the wake of, you know, the first Women's March was the largest single-day protest in American history. And so when I went out with my colleagues to cover this year's marches, I was in New York this year, I did wonder, will this feel subdued? Will the crowds be small? Will people not have the energy? Will they just be exhausted? And I was so, you know, almost surprised to find that that wasn't the case. I interviewed at least five people who hadn't marched in 2017 who were out there marching in 2018 for a variety of reasons. The crowd in New York was much more diverse than I expected. And people all had, you know, their own reasons for being out there. And we've seen so much happen um, over the last year, year plus, that has sort of re-energized these movements in small pockets. We see the Me Too movement happening. Um, We've seen again, what's happening in Parkland. And every time you have sort of this flashpoint, people are re-energized and rally around these, you know, specific causes. And that keeps the movement going. What would you say in terms of, like, the men? Do you think it's also different because there are a a huge group of men, a significant group of men who really support this movement and support the women who are, you know, who are doing it, who are involved. Does that, it would seem to me that makes it a big difference too in terms of the timing. Absolutely. Men are essential to all of these conversations. You know, I wrote this book for young women because young women are a group that are traditionally, you know, have traditionally been overlooked, dismissed, told to make their voices and themselves smaller. And so I wanted to speak to them directly. But that doesn't mean that we shouldn't, that women shouldn't be speaking to men or that men are not, again, essential to this conversation. Because a healthy political system is one where all of our voices are listened to and involved. And I think that there is something really special about um, a lot of these moments bringing men and women together to have really difficult and important conversations. Certainly in the wake of Me Too, I have had some of the most fulfilling and wonderful conversations, the productive conversations about sexual harassment and assault with the men in my life. Um, so we have to create space in these conversations for men. And we also have to ask men to step up and take responsibility and to reach out to other men and share why they think it is so important to support women and to be involved in these conversations and in these causes. 
Yeah, I, I think that's very important. And as a mother of three boys who are now men, I think that I did my part in, in, in sort of trying to do exactly <laughs> what you're talking about. So you do have a generation of young men who are doing and saying and feeling, you know, the way that you're describing. Um, you know, one of the things you talk about is while one tries to do this or get involved in the uh, in the uh, in the movement. Um, you give in your book advice for self-care and how to really, you know, some people, a lot of us, you know, you get involved in something, you get overworked, overwhelmed, and you say, you know, I can't do this anymore. You know, I support the cause, but I just, it's too much for me. So not to get to that point, you talk about, like, what can we do so that we, that we don't get involved in overload and sort of leave what we started out to do if we wanted to be involved. Burnout is absolutely real, and I want to validate the fact that it can be so overwhelming even just to consume the news right now. There's so much information. We're sort of being assaulted with tons of information day in, day out, and it is exhausting. And, and so while I'd say it is essential to be involved and to educate ourselves, we also need to give ourselves permission to step back sometimes, to take a moment and say, I'm going to turn off the news. I'm going to log off of Twitter and Facebook. I'm going to close my laptop for, you know, 12 hours, 24 hours. And I'm going to do the things that bring me genuine joy or that really recharge my internal battery. And that's why I wanted to ask all of the women that I interviewed what they did to practice self-care. And all of them had little rituals, you know, a huge range of things uh, that, that they used to balance those feelings of burnout and exhaustion out. And that could be spending a night in with your family. That could be binge watching your favorite show on Netflix or taking a bath or going to therapy, really whatever you need to, to just find that, um, to find that joy and to find that energy within. And I'd also say that stepping back can sometimes open up the space for greater creativity. This is something Lucy McBath stressed to me. She said, you know, when Jordan first was killed, she threw herself so wholly into the work that she was reaching the point of burnout. And she decided to step back for a few months. And she said that she got ideas in that time and was able to then, you know, renew her commitment to the work in more productive ways afterwards. That is so critical and it's so overlooked and I think that that's one probably an issue that women do have difficulty maybe doing that being able to step back and to take care of themselves um, you know I often see women as kind of the ever ready bunnies they just keep on going and keep on going until they collapse yeah. which is not a good thing and uh, you really have to do exactly I, I do I've done what you say in the book I mean my thing is just to stop to do turn off all the the news and the internet and um, read a book that's so completely not related to politics, something simple and relaxing and calming. And that really does make a difference. And maybe even cutting some of my conversation and and saying, you know, I just can't talk about this anymore. Let's talk about something, you know, um, you know, less toxic at the moment. That's another way that I do it. Absolutely. And it's really whatever works for you. You know, there's not like a one size fits all with self-care. It's whatever, again, recharges your internal battery. And that's going to be different for every single one of us. And I do think women, 
you know, are, are sort of taught to put ourselves last often. And that's why I wanted to make sure to include in this guidebook something that you can kind of go back to to remind you that, hey, I matter in all of this as well. And I am allowed to. And it's, you know, better for the movement if I take care of myself. Yeah. It's critical, I think. It's really critical. That's a really, really important point. Um, so this guidebook is great. I mean, this is the, sort of the book that every, every uh, at least the women that I know, this is what they've been waiting for. <laughs> like, oh, tell me so how to do to hear it. that. <laughs> yeah. Because you need sort of a, somebody to hold your hand, like, specifically, what do I do? You know, and there just seems to be so much out there that it becomes overwhelming and you don't know how to make the choices. And I think what your book does, kind of, you know, holding your hand and saying, well, this is how you can make your choices. And, yes, there are a lot of choices out there, but this is, you know, pick and choose what, what, what's good for you. Um, right. You do not so, have to do it all. <laughs> yeah, you don't have to do it all, exactly. Sort of that baby steps. Just take baby steps and, and you could do something. And um, then there's this whole groundswell um, so, so it's great. It's, it's re- really a good book for, for everybody, I would say, as you say, not just for women, but also for men and your sons and your partners and whoever. It's not just for women. Um, so talk to us about the websites, well, the website about you and what you're doing and the book so that we can make sure that everybody can buy the book online, Amazon, bookstores everywhere. Um, so, you know, give us some... Um, information about the websites. Yes. So you can, you know, find my work. I'm at HuffPost. um, But you can find the book on Amazon at Barnes & Noble at your local bookstore and at resistlikeagirl.com. And I assume, so now besides, I don't mean besides, but obviously your job uh, at HuffPost, what else specifically are, or is there anything else specifically that you're doing right now that we should know about in relation to the movement? Um, you know, this book is, this is it. my contribution right now. Um, I yeah. am still, you know, in my full-time job as a journalist at HuffPost. And I also, I have a podcast, which is part of my, you know, the lighter side of my responsibilities about pop culture and about the Bachelor franchise. Because, you know, we all contain multitudes. And you're allowed to, you know, have a little fun sometimes, too. Yeah, well, isn't that what we've been talking about? Yeah, you got to do the big stuff, <laughs> yeah. but give your, yeah, have, yeah. So your podcast is, how do we connect to your podcast? Uh, it is called Here to Make Friends. You can find it on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get podcasts. Okay. Well, it's been great talking to you this morning. Um, lots of great, good information, great book, the guidebook, as I said, that we've been waiting for. And, um, yeah, you've definitely made your contribution. <laughs> Thanks so much. Thank you so much. Yeah. And I just, you know, if if a few young women read the book and are inspired by it, then I'll have done my job. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And once they read the book, obviously, they're going to share that book with everybody else and, you know, the <laughs> snowball effect. So we'll just wait for your next book. Um, <laughs> <laughs> thank you. Great talking to you. You too. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you've been listening to The Catherine Zox Show. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com. 
Are you or someone you know interested in attending college? With both college tuition and college enrollment up 60% since 2002, there is a lot of competition, and careful planning needs to be a part of the process. Tune in to Getting In, a College Coach Conversation, hosted by Elizabeth Heaton and featuring a team of college coach experts. We'll bring you the tips, techniques, and know-how to navigate the road to college and do so the smart way. Listen live every Thursday at 4 p.m. Eastern Time, 1 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. What if there was a radio show that could demonstrate how we can cut your taxes in half without diminishing needed government services? One that could explain how to create tens of millions of jobs at no cost to taxpayers, as well as fantastic yet easily affordable health care. Side effects include cutting crime rates nationwide, providing better education for our children, international peace and harmony, and protecting your private personal data from government intrusion. Tune in to Libertarians Working for you with Arvind Vora, Tuesdays at 8 p.m. Eastern Time, 5 p.m. Pacific Time on Voice America Variety. News. Opinion. Your voice counts. Call toll-free 1-866-472-5787. 1-866-472-5787. VoiceAmerica.com. You're listening to The Catherine Zox Show. If you'd like to join our conversation this morning, call now. The toll-free number is 866-472-5788. That number again is 866-472-5788. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you're listening to The Catherine Zox Show. And joining me this morning is John Allock, co-founder, director of mindfulness at Sea Change Preparatory, and author of 40 Things I Wish I Told My Kids. Mindful messages about success, happiness, leather, pickles, and the use and misuse of imagination. John Alcock has dedicated over 15 years to the practice and instruction of mindfulness. As the co-founder of Sea Change Preparatory, a school that incorporates mindfulness into its curriculum, he has witnessed how this essential practice has helped students achieve the unthinkable. Alcock uh, helps adults and children alike achieve peace, self-acceptance, and self-realization. He's a Harvard-educated trial lawyer who is featured on NBC Nightly News for his students' philosophy and success, including world-record-breaking swimmers. Welcome to the show. Nice to have you on this morning, John. Thank you. Good morning. Great to have you. Okay, well, you're very successful, and now you're going to help us uh, as uh, consumers and tell us how we can be successful and how we can help our children to be successful. So I found it very interesting. I do like the topic, uh, 40 things I wish I told my kids. Um, let's start with that. What? I, I don't know if we want to go through the 40 things that you would have told us, but uh, <laughs> uh, what, what inspired you to write this book? At what point did you decide, well, now I wish I had told my kids all of these things and it would help them to be more successful or better people? Yeah, it was about uh, 15, 18 years ago. I was going through a challenging time in my life. I was going through a divorce and some other things. And I uh, turned to mindfulness. I spent a uh, better part of a couple of years uh, reading it, about it, going to um, seminars, going to retreats, uh, silent retreats, and, and many, many things. And it really, really changed my life. 
And I looked for a book to provide my three daughters, who by that time were in their teens, um, to provide them the information that I had been learning that had helped me so much. And I couldn't find one. And so uh, on Father's Day of 2009, in a hotel room in London, I decided to start writing them emails. And so over a couple of years, I wrote them, much to their chagrin, I might add, a couple hundred emails. And they forwarded them to friends and and friends of friends. And the feedback was I should put it together in a book. Um, So I did. And that was the beginning. That was the book. That's how and you had no about. intention of actually writing a book. I mean, it just sort of, it was like it it evolved. It was just organic, I guess, as they say, right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, when I first started writing them, I said, you know, maybe this will turn into a book someday. But my primary intention was to explain mindfulness in a very simple, basic way to a Western audience uh, who was unfamiliar with it, my kids, uh, and do it in a clear, concise, succinct way, in a way that would be easily helpful to them to help change their lives. So in other words, you made it practical, because I think, well, first of all, I think of mindfulness, somehow I think of adults, number one, and number two, you know, I think of some of the touchy-feely kind of stuff, and it's not really going to be that practical, and I don't have time to do it, uh, let alone help my kids to, to, um, to do it, so... That that was kind of a different perspective that you had, it would seem to me anyway, um, to make it easy and acceptable in a Western culture. Because we kind of have difficulty with mindfulness, I think. Even though there's a lot out there about it, there's something that we resist. Because I think the Western attitude is we have to control everything. We have to control the external world. And once we do that, and once we grasp that and overcome it, then everything is going to be great. It's kind of, I mean, I think that's sort of the underlying uh, theme in Western culture. Do you agree? Yeah, it, yeah well, you couldn't have uh, summarized my first chapter uh, any better. <laughs> the first chapter is uh, don't be ruled by external, uh, don't be ruled by the tyranny of events. And that's exactly what you said is the way we, we look at things in the West. Uh, you know, the stock market goes down, we're sad. Um, you know, Trump does something, we're sad. Uh, the stock market goes up, we're happy. Uh, we drive to work and there's traffic, we're angry. We let external events control us uh, all the time. And with mindfulness, you can create a space uh, between the external event and your mind state where you can craft a wiser response to the external event and create a situation where, frankly, the external event never controls your happiness or your ultimate mind state, uh, but, but your response uh, to it is always what governs. Well, give us an example, like with your, with your kids at the school and how that fits in to, say, the daily life of the children, like so teaching them um, how to not let these external events control your life, but it, it's the internal, your reaction, you know, how does that actually specifically work, let's say, with the, with the kids? Yeah, we have actually a really innovative program. And so three days a week, uh, we gather um, at 7 in the morning, uh, about 100 yards from the sea change facility um, at a park above the ocean uh, here in Del Mar in, in California. 
And part of the Sea Change program is the kids swim in the open ocean three days a week. But before they go in the water, um, we sit in a circle and practice basic mindfulness techniques, largely paying attention to your breath and thereby releasing uh, external events that may be troubling, like the noise of a train or internal stories uh, that may be distracting, like what do I need to do later today, my brother's bothering me, uh, whatever. Uh, and so we practice that. Um, and then the kids go in the water, and they have the opportunity to further practice mindfulness uh, because, you know, jumping in 62-degree uh, water uh, here in the winter in San Diego and swimming an hour uh, requires a lot of challenge, uh, overcoming a lot of challenges. And so by the time they get up to school uh, to start their studies, <laughs> they've already had a lot of practice uh, in terms of training their attention uh, to focus it on the intentions that best serve them and release those thoughts, emotions, and other distractions that won't allow them to perform um, at, at their best. So in doing that, what would you say is the most difficult part of that for the children? Um, because this is something new, I assume. This is something they haven't done or they didn't sort of grow up with that, even if it's only a few short years. What's the most difficult thing for them to be able to do to let go of all that external noise that impacts their um, their brains that sort of keep them from achieving um, th- their goals or what they want to do? Well, it differs with each, it, with each, each student, uh, but I would say the common thread um, is that we have, we have a culture to fight, right? I mean, our yeah. culture is one of distraction. Uh, if it's not the cell phone, uh, it's the Internet shopping. If it's not the Internet shopping, it's this show or that show or this distraction or that distraction. We're, we're constantly bombarded uh, with media messages uh, from advertising and other places um, that are really, frankly, counter uh, to, <laughs> to our long-term happiness um, and, 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 you know, the wise intentions that we want to focus on. So really, it's, it's a, uh, it, that's the biggest challenge with any of the kids. So in other words, now we can get maybe a little more specific. So we want to help them, as you say, you know, overcome some of the, their fears and limiting beliefs. This is what you talk about in the book. Um, and, yep. again, achieve the goals for themselves that they want to achieve. There are a few, like one of the things you talk about is, um, and this is so common, how to let go of the I'll be happy when, and I hear that all the time. Actually, it just carries through from children to adults. If, once I do this, I'll be happy. Once I get an A in math, everything's golden. Once I get into the college that I want to get into, uh, you know, everything will be fine. Right. Um, That's a fallacy. Yeah, that's it's a it's a huge challenge, Um, and it comes from our unrealistic view of goals in the West. Um, in the West, we view goals as kind of sticks uh, to beat us uh, to get to some accomplishment. But what we try to teach our students is 
Um, getting to the accomplishment is not what's going to achieve happiness in your life. Having goals, having solid, meaningful goals is very, very important. But by far the more important thing is acting according to wise daily intentions and trying your best to meet the goal. But there's a lot of things that are going to get in the way of actually achieving any goal that we set that are totally out of our control. And beating ourselves up for when we don't meet the goal as a result of those things that we have no control over does no good for anyone. So that's kind of the mindset we try to encourage. So in other words, if I don't get an A and I get a B, that's okay. My goal was to get an A, but I got a B, but it's not. But it, it was a good goal to try to achieve and be content or be happy with whatever you were able to achieve. Is that what you're saying? Or Yes, with a very important uh, additional statement. That is, as long as your daily moment-to-moment intention was uh, satisfied. So in, in other words, as long as you tried hard, you aspired to do your best at all times, you inspired other people to do your best, you showed courage when people tried to distract you from your goal, as long as all those things were done, and those are daily intentions that we can do every day and every moment, as long as you satisfied all those daily intentions, um, not reaching the goal is perfectly fine. Um, It's the daily intentions that count um, in terms of your long-term happiness. Because guess what? Even if you got the A, you're on to the next goal anyways. (laughs) So whether or not you achieve the last goal or not, there's another mountain to climb. Uh, And the daily intentions in climbing that mountain are are what are going to dictate your day-to-day happiness. And also, frankly, whether or not you're likely to achieve the goal. So intention, that's the key word, your intentions, the day-to-day intentions. Another thing, um, because I think this is uh, an important one, we have to realize or understand how do I, you say, how to identify the false narratives that keep us from achieving our goals. And like, what what are false narratives? What do they do? What are some of the things that we use as false narratives that prevent us from achieving what we want to achieve? Well, I mean, one of the, one of the biggest is, uh, oh, I can't do that. I'm not capable of doing that. Um, I, I, I can't do that today. I can't, I can't wake up at 6 in the morning to go to the gym. I can't do this. I can't do that. Well, well that's one of the biggest false narratives. Another is the victim mentality. Um, you know, every bad event that occurs in our life, we can take two approaches to it. One is the victim mentality. Oh, my God, I'm, it's, so, it's so bad that this happened to me. Why me? Totally different approach is, okay, this event occurred. I can use it as a learning opportunity. No matter how bad of an event occurs in my life, there's an opportunity for me to use it to catapult me to a better place. You know, that's so important because I think so much, and we only have so much energy and we really get, one gets, you get enervated by going over and over why this happened, why it would happened. It's not that, and so just as you say, rather than say, okay, this happened, now what do I do? This is what I have to deal with. And and I think that that's really something that uh, 
well, obviously it's also a cause of a lot of um, depression in people because they spend so much time trying to kind of, you know, understand why they were a victim rather than going forward with, you know, what they have. Each, the only, and uh, I see that a lot. I see that as a social worker a lot in, when I used to be in practice. Um, here's another one that you talk about, how to drop the mental habits that do not lead to genuine happiness. Well, what are those mental habits? That's kind of oh, a general term. Of- what are we talking about? That's that's one of my favorite topics. Uh, it, it actually, I'm I'm toying with that being the kind of uh, topic for my for my second book. Um, well, you just mentioned one. Um, chapter two of the book is ninety percent of my worry of our worries are wrong. Ninety um, percent, more way more than ninety percent. Conservatively, ninety percent of what we worry about is never going to happen. And not only is it never going to happen, it's never going to happen in the severe way with which we catastrophize the way we imagine it's going to happen. And so a huge amount of our time and energy is spent thinking about the future when it's never going to happen. And our thinking actually doesn't help us in terms of resolving how to approach the situation, it saps us of energy and wastes a tremendous amount of time. So one of the main mental habits uh, that, that if, if you can just change this, you can imbue yourself with a tremendous amount of additional energy and time in order to do something productive with the time. So that's one example. Yeah, that is critical, and I, 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 I've always, and maybe I didn't say it quite in the way that you would um, have listed as one of the 40 things you wish you told your kids, but I've always told my kids, I have three grown sons, that the, the worst, the most difficult or the worst things that ever have happened to me come out of left field. I'm worrying about one thing, and then all of a sudden something happens that I wasn't able to predict, that I have to deal with. And, you know, that's kind of an old expression, but it, it, it's really true. I mean, and, or some of the most devastating things, not the things that I think are going to happen or going to, or that I plan on how I'm going to handle it, and it's never happened. And I think that really is, that should be the, yeah, I think that should be your next book. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, Mark Twain said it best. He said, I've had some very great misfortunes in life very few of which actually happen. They're all part of his, they're all in his imagination. (laughs) Next one. Well, we can go through some of these because, well, I think we kind of, we have talked about this, but, you know, change our thoughts, uh, not control them. That's that's critical. Maybe we talk about that in detail because changing our thoughts doesn't mean controlling our thoughts. So what is the difference Right. Um, so in the West, uh, we think of ourselves as like Captain Kirk on the Starship Enterprise. And, and, our, and the Starship Enterprise deck is like our mind. And Captain Kirk controls the deck, and so we control our mind. It's not that way at all. Um, I mean, all you need to do is sit quietly for about two minutes and try to control what thoughts enter your head, and you realize you're an abject failure. No one can do it. 
thoughts come into your head based upon all kinds of different things, your subconscious, uh, what's happening to you externally in your life. Um, and so you can't do anything about what thoughts arise, or you can do very little, and certainly very little to control them on a moment-by-moment basis. Uh, but what you can do is determine which thoughts you actually pay attention to, which thoughts you actually take the time to examine and allow yourself to be captured by, um, and release those that you choose not to pay attention to and not to be captured by, and that's the essence of mindfulness. And the cool thing about that is if you don't pay attention to a thought, it goes away. Attention is what fuels and feeds our thoughts and beliefs. If you are in control of your attention and you can move it from the uh, unhealthy and unskillful thoughts and realign it with those intentions and thoughts that are healthy, skillful, and and wise, um, that's the way to change your life. But trying to control the thoughts that come up in the first instance is, is a fool's errand. Now, I will say that after, you know, practicing mindfulness for a while, uh, you get better thoughts appearing. <laughs> you know, the, ones, the bad ones don't come up as much, but they still come up, and you still need to deal with them in the mindful way I just described. Yeah. Is it like not listening to the noise all the time? I mean, it's sort of that noise becomes the background or, and you focus on, on, on the not noise, let's say. Is, is it sort of like that? You know, the stuff that comes into your mind that I, I've always described it as, as noise and, and just kind of let it go because it's not something yeah. that, uh, yeah. It, it's, it's, it's a, I like to think of it as a matter of paying attention. So, so it's a matter of, uh, paying attention to the thoughts that arise or the emotions that arise or the noises that arise out of your experience um, and developing the ability to choose whether or not to continue to pay attention to that thought or that emotion or that set of noises or whether to choose to pay attention to something different and to, to move your attention from one thing to another. That's why meditation is such a great practice for this, because you, there's one tool you have that is always in your toolbox, no matter where you are, no matter what you're doing, what, what you're not doing, you have your breath. Your breath is with you as long as you're alive. And it's a metronome that you can use to train your attention. And it's a handy tool. And so you can use that breath to take your attention off noxious thoughts, thoughts that are not helpful to you, uh, whatever you want. And it's an amazingly useful tool um, that is, you know, only recently been discovered in the West. In the East, it's been known <laughs> to be useful for thousands of years. Well, as you say, we have our breath all the time, so you can be anywhere any time, as long as you're alive and you can, and you, you have that tool that you can use, um, which is a great point. Uh, I guess last, we have a few minutes left. Um, you, you talk about how we can teach ourselves and our children that our, in, our intrinsic value has nothing to do with our achievements. So what, 
what, explain that to us. What does that mean? Well, it, it's a little bit like what we were saying in the earlier part. In the West, we say, okay, I did good on a test. I'm a good boy. I'm worth something. I did bad on a test. I'm a bad boy. I'm not worth anything. Um, that's ridiculous thinking and extremely harmful. Um, but the truth of the matter is that your intrinsic value has nothing to do with whether or not you did good or bad on a test or whether or not you have a sharp-looking suit on today or not. Um, your intrinsic value, trying to prove that you're valuable, is like trying to prove red is red. It just is. Um, and looking at your behaviors or your traits um, as either skillful or not skillful, but not dependent, your core value isn't dependent upon them, is really the way that you should approach it. And by the way, that makes it much easier to drop negative habits. They're like a dirty old sweater that you don't need anymore. They're not part of you. Um, they're, they're just an attribute that you, you may have that you can choose to discard. So whether I get a raise or a better job or an A-plus on the test doesn't make me a better person internally. That's not my... I'm good no matter what. I'm good because I'm good, not because of how someone or how I'm evaluated externally from some other source. Um, That's, yeah, the way yeah. I would say it is you're, you're valuable as a person uh, regardless of how you do on a test or what suit you wear. Um, and guess what? When you have that attitude, um, you'll make better choices in life. Um, you won't be dependent on grasping things uh, that may not be wise things to grasp at. Yeah, and, uh, yeah, yes, I, I totally agree with that. That is very true. And uh, I think, as you say, these are great things, not just for us, but to teach our children and as I say, teach our children well. We have a couple minutes left, so I want to mention the book again, 40 Things I Wish I Told My Kids, Mindful Messages About Success, Happiness, Leather, Pickles, and the Use and Misuse of Imagination. So there's, there's lots of stuff, lots of resources in the book. And the author is John Alcock, a co-founder, director of Mindfulness at Sea Change Preparatory. And, John, uh, do we have a website that we can go to? We can buy the book on Amazon, bookstores everywhere. Um, can you give us a website to go to uh, that we can reference the book and you and what you're doing? Yes. Uh, the, the website is 40 Things I Wish I Told My Kids. And uh, if you go to the website, it'll offer you a variety of ways to purchase the book, the common ones, Amazon, Barnes & Noble, as well as others. Uh, there'll be some additional resources there, some uh, examples of me uh, talking on some of these things. Uh, there's also a link to the Sea Change website and some other information on mindfulness and education for anyone that's interested in that. Great. John, thanks so much for being on the show today. Um, great. It was great talking to you. Yes, thank you. I'm Catherine yeah, Zock, really your social worker with the microphone, and you've been listening to The Catherine Zock Show. 
We hope you have enjoyed today's episode of The Catherine Zox Show. You can listen live every Thursday morning at 7 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America channel. Want to know more about Catherine? Visit her website at www.catherinezox.com. Be sure to join us next week for more interviews and great conversations with Catherine Zox. 